Replacing people of note on Fine Music Radio this week, we have another in the series of lectures in collaboration with UCT Summer School called Fine Minds. Emeritus Professor Ingrid Fisk from the Center for Extramural Studies at UCT, perhaps better known as the poet Ingrid de Kock, will introduce our lecturer, Professor J.M. Kutsir. But before that, here is a piece of music requested by Professor Kutsir. It's called Lang Arm by the Years Brothers from the Kamisberg in Namaqualand, who are playing on three-stringed Blick Fiol and were recorded by David Kramer for his album Karua Kitar Blues. We are honoured to have as our Fine Minds lecturer today, novelist and critic Professor J.M. Kutsia, who will reflect on the life and writings of Hendrik Witboy. Born in 1940 in Cape Town, J.M. Kutsia is the recipient of the 2003 Nobel Prize for Literature, the fifth African writer and the second South African, after Nadine Gordimer, to be so honoured. He has received many other awards for his novels, including two Booker Prizes and numerous other honours and honorary doctorates. An essayist, linguist, critic and translator, as well as a novelist, he has written 12 novels, three fictionalised autobiographies, letters, introductions, translations, reviews and essays. His most recent works are the 2013 novel the Childhood of Jesus, and Here and Now, 
Letters 2008-2011, to co-authored with Paul Auster. A second collection of letters was published this year, 2015, and exchange with British psychoanalyst Arabella Kurtz. Entitled The Good Story, Exchanges on Truth, Fiction and Psychotherapy, these letters discuss the role of storytelling in psychotherapy with an emphasis on the question of truth. Does the life story which the therapist helps the patient to tell have to be a true story? Kutsi is descended on his father's side from early Dutch immigrants to South Africa in the 17th century, and his mother had German and Polish forebears. He studied mathematics and English at UCT and subsequently completed his PhD in linguistics and literature at the University of Texas in Austin in the USA with a stylistic analysis of the works of Samuel Beckett. He taught at the State University of New York at Buffalo till 1971 where he began his first novel, Dusklands. The inquiry in that early novel seems to me to bear some relation to his interest in Henrik Wittboy. Unable to extend his visa in the USA because of his involvement in anti-Vietnam War protests, Kutsi returned to South Africa in 1971 and he was appointed lecturer in English at UCT in 1972. In 1984, he was appointed to a full professorship and delivered a much-quoted inaugural lecture entitled Truth in Autobiography. He retired from UCT in December 2001 and after relocating to Australia in 2002, took the position of Honorary Research Fellow in the English Department at the University of Adelaide, while still making frequent trips to South Africa. He served for years as Professor on the famous Committee on Social Thought at the University of Chicago, and has had visiting professorships at Harvard, Johns Hopkins University, and elsewhere in the USA. Among many other activities, Kutsi actively supports events which profile South African and Australian writers internationally and is a key figure in the establishment of Oak Tree Press's first chapter series, limited editions of signed works by literary greats that raise money for child sufferers and orphans of the African HIV-AIDS pandemic. In 2005, he was awarded the Order of Mapum Gubwe, gold class by the South African government for his, quote, exceptional contribution in the field of literature and for putting South Africa on the world stage, close quotes. Widely admired for the striking austerity of his prose, his analytic brilliance and his complex and uncompromising themes, Kutsia in this talk, entitled Resistance to German Conquest in Namibia, the letters of Hendrik Wittboy, considers one of the most dogged leaders of resistance to the German takeover of what is now Namibia. Kutsir contributes to the growing research into Wittboy's life, writing and political impact by considering his letters, which provide absorbing insights into the internal politics of southwestern Africa on the eve of conquest as well as into contrasting conceptions of warfare, African and European, in the late 19th century. 
One of the overarching themes of the history of Southern Africa in modern times is the spread of European settlement into the interior of the continent. Starting from the Dutch settlement at the Cape of Good Hope, colonists pushed northward and eastward in a process that went on from the mid-17th century until the turn of the 20th century, taking them far beyond the borders of the present Republic of South Africa. Expansion toward the east brought the settlers into conflict with Bantu-speaking peoples. Northward expansion brought them into conflict with the far less numerous Khoisan. It was on the northern frontier that the Witboi dynasty emerged, of which Hendrik Witboi, born 1830, died 1905, was to become the preeminent member. As Dutch-speaking farmers moved northward toward the Kharip River, they took over the pasturage and watering places of Khoi pastoralists and reduced those who did not flee to the status of serfs. Since the capacity of the authorities in the Cape to exercise their powers at a distance was severely limited, the northern frontier had become a haven for runaway slaves and other SKPs from the law, who coalesced into armed bands living by hunting, plundering, and cattle rustling. These bands were, in time, joined by numbers of disaffected coy serfs. Soon they were making regular raids into the lands of the Nama across the Kharip. By the early 19th century, a half-dozen such bands had established themselves north of the river in Great Namakwaland, the Namaland of present-day Namibia, and were penetrating further north into Hereroland. In relation to the indigenous Nama and Herero peoples, these raiders behaved as colonizers in much the same way that the Dutch Boers behaved elsewhere on the frontier. By dint of superior military technology, firearms, horses, and organization, the so-called commando system, they broke the power of the tribal owners of the land. They established their hegemony, exacted tribute, and destroyed indigenous culture, imposing new codes of language, dress, and behavior. The key fact about these colonists, known as Urlamps, to distinguish them from the Dutch on the one hand and the tribal Khoi on the other, the origin of the word Urlam is uncertain, is that in the terminology of 19th century racial science they were mixed. In culture they were hard to distinguish from white Boers, they spoke Dutch, they wore European-style clothes, but then the Boers of the frontier had adopted so many of the elements of migratory native pastoralism that their way of life had become as much African as European. In the Urlam colonization of Namaland, the numbers of people involved were, by today's standards, tiny. 
a typical Urlaubsband would consist of no more than a few hundred people, including women and children, while the entire indigenous Nama population was of the order of 10,000 souls. Between Urlaubs and the subjected Nama, concubinage and marriage took place. In photographs taken in the 1880s, it is hard to detect any physical difference between the two, though certain Urlamps, like the group that settled around Riobot, the so-called Busters, continued to assert their European descent. The Urlam invasion brought the peoples of southern Namibia into the modern world. In the case of the Nama, it destroyed their traditional culture, imposing a new economy which turned out to be unsustainable and bringing about the impoverishment of their land. In the case of Herrera land, Urlam overlordship was less secure and the impact on Herrera institutions correspondingly less severe. Both the Nama and the Herrera had over the centuries evolved flourishing and stable cattle-based economies for which the key skills lay in providing pasturage and water for their beasts. The economy of the Urlams, which formed part of the larger frontier economy that brought in manufactured goods from the Cape, as well as luxury items, sugar, alcohol, coffee, and, crucially, arms and ammunition, was likewise based on cattle. For their side of the trade, however, the Urlams relied less on the rearing of their own stock than on stock raiding, or, what amounts to the same thing, exacting tribute in the form of livestock. As young Nama men were drawn into the exciting life of the Urlam militias, the old cattle-tending skills of the Nama grew to be despised, and as these skills were lost, the sizes of the herds declined. To make up for falling revenues, the Urlams turned their energies to commercial hunting, first for the trade in ivory, later for ostrich feathers, but within another generation the game was hunted out too. The semi-legendary founder of the Witbois, also known as the Kobisin, or Khoisin, the Nama name of the clan, was Kido or Kupido Vitboy, who led his people across the Kharip into Nama land. Kido was succeeded by his son Moses. Moses was murdered in 1886, and his place as captain, a chieftain or military leader of the Vitboys, usurped. The usurper was challenged and killed by Hendrik Witboy, grandson of Kido, who thus became Captain. Born in 1830, Hendrik Witboy was, by the standards of the day and of his people, well-educated. He could read and write Dutch, he had a more than passing knowledge of history, as well as of manual trades like carpentry. While with the missionary Johannes Alp, he had studied the Bible. Whereas to other indigenous leaders, 
church affiliation seems more often than not to have been a means to an end. The missions provided an entry point into the colonial trade network and more generally into the Western knowledge system. Witboy took the Bible seriously and had a sense of himself as a visionary leader of his people on the model of Moses. His literary style shows the influence of his Bible reading. Witboy's Dachbuch diary consists of a large leather-bound journal purchased from a stationer in Cape Town. Some 189 pages are covered in the handwriting of Witboy himself and of various scribes and secretaries. The text, consisting largely of copies of correspondence relating to the affairs of the Witboys, is written in Cape Dutch. The spelling of words is sometimes phonetic. Witboy clearly intended it to constitute the annals of his reign. This unique document was taken as booty during a German raid in 1893 and found its way to the Cape archives. A transcript was published in Cape Town in 1929, but there is no evidence that Witboy continued with his diarizing after 1893. The diary opens in 1884, with the Witboys locked in armed struggle with the Herrero. In these early entries, Hendrik Witboy's pleasure in a life of skirmishing and cattle raiding comes across clearly. Here is Diary Entry, 18th June 1884. Yesterday, 17th June, we spotted Herrero at Cope. They were spies, and we chased them like game. In the pursuit, one of our men was injured by the Herrero. He had actually seen them, but thought they were his own men, seeing they were ahead. Thus he came up close to them and was shot with two shots. But we recovered him while he still lived, as he was calling out to us. That's how we found him. The Herrero did not get him. From the moment we found him, he kept exclaiming in joy that he had not ended up in the hands of the Herrero, calling out two phrases continuously, Praise the Lord, my captain. All the afternoon, up to his end, he called out these words. We raised him on two horses and so brought him to the cart at Cope. That night he died on 17th June 1884. He was Korabib. We buried him on the 18th. At his grave I spoke these words in his memory. If you do not become children and you attend closely, then our women and children will also visit this grave. On the 18th, we remained here in Kop, while the Herrero were in Karuas. On 19 June, we rode on to the Karuas area, and the Herrero engaged us. It was afternoon, and our foot soldiers had a difficult struggle on that day, 
since the Herrero stood their ground. It was observed that there were men going down among the Herrero. On our side, a Felschundracher was wounded in the arm, but slightly, and we fought until nightfall. And we slept there, on the bank of the river, and the Herrero on the other. And on this day, the Herrero took David Pitter's horse, which Johannes Pitters had been riding. They got it like this. Johannes had dismounted to move towards the fighting. Other men took the horse to safety elsewhere, and when he returned, he could not find it. A Herrero died at our hands, and we acquired a rifle. On the 20th, we rode to Carwas, and so did the Herrero, two hundred men altogether, until Sunday. On the 23rd, we pursued the Herrero and attacked their war party. That day, the fighting was difficult on the right flank, where there was dissension among the Felschundrachers, so that David Pitter was alone on this flank. Three of our men were injured, Abraham Janse and Paul Slingen and Johannes Karuhab of the Red Nation, and four horses shot. Finally, we put the Herrero to flight on all sides, but by then it was too late to pursue them. On this day, we took two horses and one rifle on our left flank. And our teacher of Herrero, son of Rode Damap, fell on our right flank. On the next day, the 24th, we took another horse. Thus we gained four horses altogether. Two of our own horses, Uncle Hendrik's mares, had succumbed to their gunshot wounds. Indeed, but for an unforeseen eruption of history, one might have predicted for Witboy the life of a typical Urlam captain, competing for wealth and power with other Urlam groups, with the Herrero and with the indigenous Nama. A charismatic leader with a corps of able-bodied men with guns and horses under his command and a group of families under his protection who owed him their loyalty. In fact, however, the fate of Witboy and his people was decided from afar. Since 1870, the European powers had been blocking the import of Prussian goods and pressure was mounting in Prussia to find markets elsewhere. In 1882, the German trader Adolf Luderitz established a station at what is now Luderitz Bay on the Namibian coast and appealed to Berlin for official backing. Chancellor Bismarck acceded. From his fellow European powers, he demanded and obtained control in the form of a protectorate called German Southwest Africa over the hinterland of this trading post. Thus, Germany acquired its first overseas colony, 835,000 square kilometers in extent. Other colonial claims soon followed in Togo, Cameroon, Tanganyika, Samoa. Bismarck himself was not in favor of a full-blown takeover of the new territory, 
which would have entailed the creation of a local administration and eventually the building of expensive infrastructure for settlement. His intention, rather, was to grant charters on the Lideritz model that would allow private entrepreneurs to exploit the territory. But colonialism has a dynamic of its own. Under Bismarck's more ambitious successor, German expeditionary forces follow the German flag, and then German settlers arrive to occupy the land wrested by those forces from the native peoples. Within 20 years, the southern half of southwest Africa had been subdued with great brutality and loss of life, and its peoples had lost their land and their cattle. On 29 October 1905, Hendrik Witboy died of wounds received while fighting the Germans. The site of his grave, somewhere near Falchras, is unknown. There is a memorial to him in Gibeon, the main settlement of the Witboys. After Hendrik's death, the demoralized Witboys sued for peace. However, sporadic resistance against the Germans continued until 1907, when the last of the guerrilla leaders, Jakob Marenga, was shot by British colonial police near Uppington in the Cape Colony. In hindsight, we can see that if the peoples of the territory had come together early to resist the colonizers, they might have been able to make the enterprise too expensive for Germany to sustain. They were, after all, experienced in small-scale warfare. They were armed with Western weapons and knew the terrain as the Germans did not. Regrettably, however, intergroup feuding continued unabated and was exploited by the Germans to split the opposition. Indeed, between 1894 and 1904, the Witboys contributed fighting men to various German campaigns against the Herero. The last ditch uprising of 1904, initiated by Samuel Maherero and joined belatedly by the aged Witboy, though widely supported, was doomed to fail against the superior forces that the Germans had by then assembled. Not the least attractive feature of Witboy's letters, both to his German foes and to traditional rivals like Samuel Maherero, is their antique courtesy. Witboy adhered to a code of honor which included doing no violence to women and children, treating prisoners humanely, and giving the enemy dead a decent burial. It also included not attacking until first attacked, though Witboy is sometimes driven to tortuous feats of sophistry to prove he was not the aggressor. Because an officer's code of honor was important to his concept of soldiering, he was shocked by the attack on his base at Hurenkranz in 1893, when German soldiers deliberately slaughtered women and children. A similar contempt for African life, backed by pseudo-Darwinian racial science, 
which classified the Khoisan, including the Nama, as one of the inferior races, was exhibited in the course of the suppression of the 1904 uprising. General Lothar von Trotha, who led the German forces, arrived in southwest Africa with a well-merited reputation for ruthlessness gained in campaigns in China and Tanganyika. He was by no means ashamed of the barbarities he practiced. Africans submit only to force, he wrote, to exercise such force with undisguised terrorism, terrorismus, and even with atrocities, grausamkeit, has been and is my politics, politique. I destroy rebellious tribes with streams of blood and streams of money. Witboy's illusion that European military officers adhered to a code of chivalry had been encouraged by his dealings with Major Theodor Leutwein, the most humanly attractive of the series of German commanders whom he faced on the battlefield. The letters exchanged between the two have an old-world charm. My dear captain, writes Leutwein on 8 July 1894, although I am back in front of your position, a little before the 1st of August, I am not planning to open hostilities before the contractually agreed date. Your people may come and go in your camp without fear of harassment, as well as visit my own men. From 1st August we will be at war. However, even then, I do not intend to open hostilities unless the letter you will want to send me upon expiry of the truce convinces me that a peaceful solution to the questions pending between us has become impossible. But even in that case, I will first send you notice of the commencement of hostilities. Until such time, I shall not shoot, but your men and my men must remain in their camps as from 1st of August. Otherwise, neither of us may be able to prevent possible incidents. Imperial Landeshauptmann Leutwein Major. After the above-mentioned hostilities had commenced, and after Witboy had been forced into retreat, he writes as follows to Leutwein. Dear Major Leutwein, I am sending this note to entreat you to be so good and turn back. Can't you see that I am retreating? I have done no great wrong to you, therefore I beg you again, let me alone and please withdraw. Hoping that you will do so, I close with cordial greetings, your friend, Hendrik Witboy, Captain. P.S. Do not let more innocent blood flow after this letter. And then again, after receiving a letter from Leutwein, dated 4 September. My dear friend, I received your letter on the run, and note that you are willing to negotiate. I agree to a ceasefire, and if you keep your men out of the mountains, I shall reply to your letter from the waterhole. 
Be patient. I am in a dry place with no water. There is nothing to drink for my animals here. It would be best for you to await my reply in Nauklift. I am on my way in that direction now. In good hope and with friendly greetings, your friend, Captain Hendrik Witboy. But his gentlemanly relations with Leutwein should not create the impression that Witboy was naive about the realities of war. On the contrary, he was a canny political operator and a gifted guerrilla commander who used the mobility of his forces and the marksmanship of his men to compensate for their small numbers. His forces never numbered more than 600 men and were usually much smaller. The bitter quality of Witboy's wit was probably lost on Major Kurt von Francois, Leutwein's predecessor and the officer responsible for the atrocities at Hurenkranz. He writes as follows to von Francois on 24 July 1893. My dear sir, I write you this letter and ask about your health. How are you? Are you well? I am still poorly. And I ask you, how are the people whom you captured? Are they in good health, physically and mentally? If you do not look after these people well, it is not good. For you, the leader, have carried them off and taken them to your place. They are weak people, and should you be unable to keep them and treat them well, then, dear friend, I ask you to return as many as you took to me. Let them return home. I am the chief of those people, and they have done you no wrong, nor have I done you wrong. Or, if you know of a wrong I have done, which only you know, then it will be my fault, and I, the chief of all, am still living. So, please return my people, since you have nothing against them. And, if you intend to go on fighting me, I beg you again, dear friend, to send me two cases of Martini Henry cartridges, so that I can fight back. So far I have not attacked, for you have stopped my supply of arms and then attacked me. Therefore give me arms, as is customary among great and courteous nations, so that you may conquer an armed enemy. Only thus can your great nation claim an honest victory. I close my letter trusting in your reply. With best greetings to Your Excellency, I remain your friend, Captain Hendrik Witboy. Witboy's letters rise to eloquent heights in his denunciation of the concept of land ownership that the new colonizers seek to impose. Here he writes to a fellow captain, Josef Friedrichs, a note in Witboy's racial typology, the Urlams and the Nama belong together as red peoples, as distinct from the blacks, the Herero, and the whites, Boers, British, Germans. Letter from Witboy to Josef Friedrichs, Wurrenkranz, 27th June 1892. My dear Captain Josef Friedrichs, I am writing these lines with a sincere request, a plea for the sake of my well-being and for your own as follows.
I hear that you have given a white man, a certain Herman, permission to live at Komsas. I am writing to tell you that I do not accept your decision. I do not want you to give any white man a farm on my land. I do not even like you giving a white man a farm on your land. For I think this part of Africa is the territory of red chiefs. We are one of color and custom. We obey the same laws, and these laws are agreeable to us and to our people. For we are not severe with each other, but accommodate to each other amicably and in brotherhood. And if the people of the one chief want to live in another chief's settlement, they can do so in peace, and both chiefs are content. They do not make prohibiting laws against each other concerning water, grazing, or roads, nor do they charge money for any of these things. No, we hold these things to be free to any traveler who wishes to cross our land, be he red, white, or black, and that is good and right and sufficient for our way of life. And by this we deprive no one of his livelihood or money, and we oppress no one by making them ask for water or pay for pasture, or by forbidding the use of roads. But with the white people it is not so at all. The white men's laws are quite unbearable and intolerable to us red people. They oppress us and hem us in with all kinds of ways and on all sides, these merciless laws which have no feeling or tolerance for any man, rich or poor. That is why I take it hard of you, chiefs of this great Namaqualand, this Africa, that you have accepted the German protection and have thereby given white men privileges and rights in our land. I see the Germans quite differently. They claim that they want to protect you against other mighty nations. But it seems to me that they themselves are the mighty nation seeking to occupy our country by force. Already they are governing us by force and prohibiting laws. That is why I do not want you to give farms in our country where they will live with their laws and privileges and undertakings. Please be so kind, dear Captain, and cancel this deal. Do not let white people settle on the farm. Had they been your own red people, I would not have said much, for we are one and should tolerate and understand one another. I see nothing good in the coming of the Germans. They brag of their power and they use it. To be continued. I must tell you, dear Captain, that the Germans want me too to sign their protection treaty. But I cannot accept that. They are watching for every opening, being careful not to provoke trouble between us. And I also wait, taking care not to provoke trouble. That is why I beg you with all my heart, dear Captain, not to lay this burden upon me of a confrontation between me and the Germans brought about by you. I'm not interested. I want to coexist with the white men as peacefully as possible, and I want nothing to do with them involving government and land ownership because I see no truth or durability 
in their protection treaty and no benefit to either people, chiefs or land, but rather humiliation, contempt and oppression of all, chiefs, people and land. Already they settle even on the chief's own home ground without asking permission and rule the people who belong there by their laws. They forbid them to move freely as they wish or to enjoy water and grazing. They forbid them to hunt the game of their own homeland. They forbid men to carry rifles. They order their lives with dates and hours. They herd them together outside the town. This is how harsh and unbearable, how incomprehensible and useless the German law is, narrow and uncouth, a bane and oppression of all that is human. Therefore I do not understand what you chiefs could have thought when you surrendered to the protection of such men, and why I am counselling every one of us to grant no concession to white men on our lands, and to give them no rights amongst us or between us. So I greet you sincerely, your friend and captain, Hendrik Witboy. To Witboy, the liberty he fights for is no abstract idea, but a deeply felt freedom to ride and hunt where you will, to move your cattle from pasturage to pasturage according to the season, and sometimes to practice your skills as a cattle rustler. In other words, he wants to preserve into the 20th century an attractive way of life, semi-nomadic but ultimately parasitic. It is neither a sin nor a crime for me to want to remain the independent chief of my country and people, he writes defiantly to Leutwein in 1894. If you want to kill me for this, Without any fault of mine, there is no harm done, nor is it a disgrace. I shall die honestly for that which is my own. Part of the pathos of his position is that the way of life in whose defense he is prepared to die had become economically unsustainable. Even if there had been no German invasion, it would have had to end soon. It is a blessing that Witboy did not live to see the fate of his red people under the German heel. Like the Herrero, they lost their firearms, their cattle, and their land. New laws were brought in to proscribe what was called vagabondage, i.e. nomadism, and to turn them into a labor force for the new German settler class, whose number had by 1913 climbed to 15,000. Of the survivors of the great uprising, some were transported to remote German colonies, others confined in concentration camps. In the most notorious of these camps on Shark Island in Luderitz Bay, 1,032 of the 1,795 inmates perished within a year of cold and illness. Of all Herrero and Nama prisoners, 45% died in captivity. Between 1904 and 1911, 
the Herrero population declined from 80,000 to 15,000. The Nama, or red population, from 20,000 to 10,000. It is not hard to see the camps as part of a program whose goal first became apparent in the sequel to the Battle of Warteberg, when von Trotter drove the remnants of the Herero fighting force, together with their women and children, into the Omaheke desert to perish of thirst. Defeating the Herero on the battlefield, and subsequently the Namatu, was, it turned out, only a first step in a larger and more sinister project, genocide. In 2004, at an event marking the centenary of the 1904 uprising, a spokesperson for the German government delivered to the Namibian people a carefully worded speech that included a bitter um Vergebung, plea for forgiveness for German crimes, but avoided the word Entschuldigung, apology. Quote, the atrocities committed at that time would today be called genocide, Völkermord, she said. And nowadays, a General von Trotta would be prosecuted and convicted. That was called Kili Meti Mili and it was performed by the Years Brothers from the album Karu Kitar Blues by David Kramer. Peter Turin Productions proudly presents a dance adaptation of Noel Coward's controversial play The Vortex. 
choreographed by Mark Goldberg with the Cape Town City Ballet at Theatre on the Bay from 29 July to 8 August. This exciting adaptation configures sex, drugs and vanity, all descending into The Vortex, a play without words, at Peter Turin's Theatre on the Bay, 29 July to 8 August. Book now for The Vortex. And now to take us up to 7 o'clock, here's music by Mozart, and it's the first movement of his Symphony No. 39 in E-flat with a Scottish Chamber Orchestra conducted by Sir Charles McCarras.
If 